You have to leave. You have to leave. I was half asleep outside of my son's new apartment on Venice Beach, which is about five minutes from our home. And my wife and my son went back to our house to pick up some things. And I decided to stay at his place and just sit outside and enjoy the sun and relax, take some sea air in. And, and I was half asleep. And I heard this voice again, you have to leave. You have to get out of here now. You don't belong here. And I woke up and I looked and there's a woman looking at me, frantically pointing me out the gate. And I said, excuse me? And she said, you have to leave. You have to leave. You have to get out of here. You do not belong here. And I go, yeah, uh, yes, I, I do. Um, no, you don't. And I go, well, he says, you don't live here. I go, yeah, that's right, I, but my son does. Your son doesn't live here. You have to leave. And um, I said, well, yes, he, he does. I haven't seen your son around. I go, no, he just moved in today. She said, oh, um, okay, uh, I'm sorry. Um, I have to just protect my property. And she walked away. And I sat there, and I looked at her, and I came up with probably 15 different ways she could have asked me who I was and why was I there. And, and, I, and I get it in some respects. Venice Beach and Santa Monica in my area, it, it has a, a different, varied community. And there's a homeless community. There's, there's all, it's a diverse community of different people, very eclectic. And so the question that I had as I'm processing this was, well, did I have to leave because I wasn't a millennial? I'm a baby boomer. Did I have to leave because I was black and she was Asian? Did I have to leave because economically I didn't look like I f could afford a place like that? Did I have to leave because I was a senior citizen, too old to be in that millennial environment? So all those things crossed my mind. It's like, wow. I can't like pinpoint one reason not to leave. I can assume maybe it's because I was black, but I don't really know if that's the reason I had to leave. And the question was, why couldn't she have just said to me, hey, sir, um, I want to disturb you, but uh, uh, do you live here or did you just move in or, or are you visiting someone? And in that moment, I realized that we have a long way to go in just our communication, just simply communication. I, I wouldn't say that she was racist or anything. I think she was frightened. And the fact that I still frighten people is a very interesting process. But I also had to look at what was the overriding issue and how many Different masks do I wear? I'm a black man. I'm a senior citizen. I am uh, not a millennial. I'm a baby boomer. Uh, I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt, so I probably didn't look like economically that I could afford to live there. But what was the reason that I had to leave? And she gave me the reason, and it gave me the reason of why we're dealing with 
the issues that we're dealing with right now in our country and in the world. It's basically it's economics. Basically, I had to leave because she saw me as a threat to her property, that I was there to endanger her and her property. Because her, her response was when she realized that she had possibly made a mistake, was that she was sorry, but I had to protect my property. It wasn't like my life, like her life was not threatened at all. I was passively laying there asleep. As a matter of fact, my life was probably more threatened than hers. I was sleeping. She could have come and hit me over the head or something. So it was very interesting. But it also made me reflect on the first time that I found out that people saw me different. And I was five years old, and we were in a car, my parents and some friends. We were in a, a big Oldsmobile driving from New York to Georgia. And it was a dusty trip. It was in the summer. There was no air conditioning. And we stopped in South Carolina. And I just remember seeing a water fountain. And, oh, I just, like, jumped out of the car, and I ran to that water fountain. And right before I got to the fountain, someone was tugging on my neck and pulling me back. I looked up, and it was my dad. And he said, well, well um, you have to go to this, we have to go to this fountain over here. So we went around the corner of the gas station, and there was another fountain that was dirty. And I go, Dad, why this one? He says, that's the one we have to drink out of. And he never really explained it to me, and I, and I understand. How does a father tell a son at five years old that the world sees you as not doesn't see you as human or doesn't see you as that you have the same privileges as any other person to drink out of any fountain. That was in 1958. And when I reflect on that, I could think about the pain that my father had to feel because I, I didn't really feel any pain myself. I, didn't, I just like, okay, I drink out of this fountain. And I never, he never really explained to me why, but I, as, as I got older, I realized why. And it's the pain of having to explain to your child that I see you as a capable, fully able person that can achieve anything. But unfortunately, there's a, there's a segment of, of the population that doesn't, and that for the rest of your life, you're going to have to overcome hurdles, different masks, and just to have a life that is fulfilling and joyful. Now, look, I'm, <laughs> I, have a, I have a great life. I, I've, I'm not in pain. Uh, the experience that I had on the beach today made me reflect more than anything and I, I was, tonight I was looking at this whole piece that happened on the beach and said, what are my feelings? What am I, am I angry? Am I upset? Am I frustrated? And I realized I was disappointed in that the only thing that we learn 
from oppression. Paolo Fieri, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It's a great book. It's a challenging book to read because he has some really complex thoughts. But the key one that I always take away from it is that the only thing we learn from oppression is how to oppress. So this woman who appeared to be Asian of some hue uh, was threatened by me. And, and she wanted to protect her property. Now let's move forward. Uh, another, I was five when that happened, another six years, so 19, probably 1963, I am walking in Queens, New York, far away in New York, and it's an evening, I don't know if I get it, it's around seven o'clock. I was on my way to the local Jewish deli to get dinner for me and my mom and my dad. And it was Mott Avenue, and there was a Tom McCann, and I'm, I know I'm dating some of you, you don't even know what a Tom McCann is, and there was a Woolworths. And as I'm walking between those two, a car pulls up in the street. A man jumps out, white male, uh, in a suit, and he grabs me. doesn't identify himself or anything. And I'm fighting, I'm screaming, and I'm like, no one's doing anything. There's people on the street, no one's, no one's coming to my rescue, no one's saying, hey, mister, who are you? I'm just snatched and put into a car. When I got in the car, I'm looking like, okay, this is survival one-on-one right here. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to have to fight. I don't know what this man wants. And I realize, and then all of a sudden, he shows me his badge. And he goes, there was a robbery here. You fit the description. And you're right, I'm 10 or 11 years old. I fit the description. What description? <laughs> you know, so, he drives me to someone's apartment who happened to be a white person. And we go up the elevator. He knocks on the door. The person comes to the door, and he holds me by my collar. So the collar, again, is being tugged. This time not by my dad, but of a strange officer. And he says to this young man and his mother, is this the kid that robbed you? He looks at me, he looks me up and down, he goes, no, that's not the kid. That's not him. He had glasses. Now here's the irony of the whole thing. The minute he said that, I knew who had robbed him. Uh, it was my friend uh, DeWitt. Not DeWitt, anybody knows or people know here, but another friend I had back, it was actually Dwight was his name, Dwight. And I didn't say anything. But here's the irony of the whole story. I actually had the same glasses, but I, I was still so self-conscious of wearing glasses that I wouldn't wear them. And on that night, I didn't wear them. So he, he takes me, we go back in the car, he drops me off exactly almost to the, the inch of where he picked me up and said, okay, see you later, bye. So I'm sort of shaking him. Like I go to this deli, I pick up the food, I get home, my parents said, hey, what took you so long? And I go, some guy snatched me off the street. My dad went full throttle nuts and said, what? Now, my dad's a minister, so he didn't say, what the F? But part of his expression said that. And I explained to him what happened. We immediately got, came out, he got 
up, put on his shoes, put on his jacket, grabbed me. We went down to the police station. And my dad literally almost got arrested. He wanted to see the officer. He wanted to see the person that picked me up, the detective. And he he was livid. I, I, I've never been so proud of my dad. He was a black man born in the South, the son of, uh, the grandson of slaves, a sharecropper in Georgia who had to leave Georgia because of he asked for, he was in town and he asked for vanilla ice cream. And at that time, so the story goes as he's told it, as he told it to us or told it to me for many, many times, he was only allowed to get chocolate ice cream because he was a black boy. So he had to leave Georgia in the middle of the night because some people came and warned my grandmother that if he didn't leave, there was some KKK that were going to come and do some harmful things. So he was shipped out to New York to his brother, James. But in that moment, in that police station, I saw my dad as a superhero. He was there fighting for his son. And, and it was such a powerful moment because that moment was, I knew that I had value. My value, I never questioned my value again because my dad valued my life. My dad valued me. Let's jump forward, let's jump forward four more years. I actually literally, one of my first jobs, and at that time there was something called the YSA, the Youth Services Association. And I literally was, got a job with that association working in that same police station where that detective picked me up. And it was really ironic and I think also a gift because I had a great time in that station with the officers. We, we had, um, there, was a, uh, there was a man there that was sort of our, he was our boss. And he, um, he was also the cook. And he also taught us how to play cards. And the work was, we just did records and did some cleaning and stuff like that. But the officers actually treated us, it was four of us working, all black, treated us very well. So here I am in the same station where three or four years earlier, I got picked up by this detective. And that was really mind-blowing me. Every day I went there for the two months that I worked there, I was like, wow, what does this say about life? What does this say about my life? And is it that, is that the duality of one being sort of seen as a threat and on the other hand, seen as capable of work and... I remember that summer and walking away from that feeling pretty whole that, okay, th the world isn't a bad place. It isn't a place that is just out to get me. So when I come back to now in 2020, we're dealing with social unrest. We're dealing with a lot of issues around race, Black Lives Matter, and we understand that Black Lives Matter doesn't mean that everybody else's life doesn't matter. It's just saying that it means that somebody has to recognize that my life 
the 67 years that I've been on the planet and all the other black lives, men, women, children, we, we matter and, and need to be treated like we matter. In that moment when she said, you don't belong here, you have to leave, I didn't, and I still don't know why she felt that way. I don't know if she felt I had to leave because of age or I had to leave because of economics or I had to leave because of race or was it all the above? All I know is that what I did walk away with is this understanding that I had this dualistic life or I had these different masks that I'm seen as that I'm just not one person. And I started thinking about all the other people and the many masks that we we deal with and and understanding that it's not it's just not people would say it's not fair. And I don't want to use that word. What's the word that I'm looking for? It's just not human. It's just not the way that humans should treat other humans. That thought or that concern that she had could have been dealt with in many different ways, all of them which would have had a positive outcome for both of us and maybe some new understanding of how to communicate across racial or intergenerational lines. I'm sure that I will see her again and maybe we'll do a podcast of some kind with her <laughs> talking about what she felt that day because I still don't know what she felt. I do know that she was concerned about her property. That was the big thing, that I was a threat, not to her life, but to her property. But it also had me really be able to reflect on the power of how I had the opportunity to not get lost in this struggle of still having the ability to understand and to balance out my life in a way that allows me to process stuff that happens like this. It's the question that I had for myself is like, wow, how long has have black people oppressed people, no matter what it, the oppression is, is black, racial, if it's gender, if it's sexual orientation, economically, do you have to justify who you are? But the real great takeaway is, is tied into a book, Between the World and Me, where I realized that the author Coates, he was my dad for his son. He talked about all the things that my dad had to deal with in raising me, protecting me, and allowing me to grow and to be able to process this America. He grew up on a farm in Georgia. He was a proud man. He's 
hardworking man, and he had to raise children in an America that has said equality doesn't exist, or privilege is limited, or your privileges are limited to, to what we tell you they are. I was reading something today that black women couldn't vote until 1965. That's sort of crazy. That's like real crazy. Like, why are we so messed up? Like, what are we afraid of? And this woman today, she maybe gave me a clue. It's about property. It's about economics. It's about, as, as Paulo Fieri says, the people in power don't want to give up any of their power. And the people not in power don't know necessarily how to fight for the power or don't want to fight for the freedom. They, we like to, the free and freedom are two different things. So, wow, what a day. My, oh, by the way, my son's apartment is great. He's on the beach. It's a great spot. And, uh, but I wasn't surprised. That's the whole thing. Even when I was sitting there before this all happened, I wasn't surprised. I was expecting it. And that, that sort of concerns me, but it, I was expecting it. So that means that I've been conditioned to, have to expect people to question my place in this world or my existence. And I expected to be profiled. Why not? I was profiled at 10 years old. So getting profiled at 67, that's part of the deal. Well, there's probably more in this, but I'll stop right there and really would love to hear your thoughts on this one.